Like they cared. This is their gift to people. And you know, people probably think, oh, you know, that's great. But when you actually have a loss like that, and you feel at loss, and then you have somebody bring you hope, they were your angels at that moment. A devastating wildfire has ravaged the town of Paradise, California, and Molly's family had to flee so quickly that they didn't have time to grab her father's urn. And they are not alone. This has happened to hundreds of families in fire-prone areas like California. Is there hope for recovering those ashes within ashes? Well, our guest today has found a way to provide some solace to these families with the help, you guessed it, of man's best friend. Hello, I'm James Jacobson, and welcome to The Long Leash. On today's show, we speak to a man who found a way to marry archaeology with canine forensics in an effort to find human cremains. Alex DeGiorgi is his name, and he is the principal investigator at an archaeological consulting firm in California. But when a co-worker lost his home in a wildfire and his father's urn inside of that home, Alex discovered a way to incorporate the incredible power of dogs' noses into his archaeological toolbox. Working with the Institute for Canine Forensics, Alex found the Alta Heritage Foundation. Their mission? To provide solace to families who have lost their loved ones twice. In today's show, Alex shares with us how dogs are helping recover those precious remains. Alex DeGiorgi, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. So you are literally a professional archaeologist. Like the URL, professional archaeologist, it goes to your company's site. You've been doing this for a while. Yes. <laughs> About uh, two and a half decades. Two and a half decades. And more recently, you have augmented your archaeological digging and all the services that you provide to include something that is rather unique, which is the discovery of cremains from fires of human ashes. And you're, of course, you're using dogs for that. Sure. Yeah, we've been partnering with a canine forensic team out here in California and the western United States. You know, we've been struck with these catastrophic wildfires in recent years due to the, uh, the drought and climate change. And when those things happen, you want to jump in there and help. And it turns out archaeology is a skill set that's needed in these disasters. Had you used dogs before in your previous archaeological work? You know, that's a good question. Uh, dogs are being commonly employed now uh, on archaeological projects as what we would categorize as a remote sensing technique, similar to ground penetrating radar or uh, other geophysical techniques where you can do non-invasive investigations to get a sense what's buried or out of sight. Dogs kind of fall into that realm of remote sensing and I personally hadn't worked with the dogs prior to this cremains recovery project, but I was aware of them in California. So is this a relatively recent advent for bringing dogs into archaeology, or is it just sort of relatively new for you? 
It's both. Okay. Yes. So it's, it's a, it is a relatively new development and it's being applied brought much more widely now than ever before. What's unique about these specially trained dogs is they can detect human bones that may have been cremated. How good are the dogs at finding human bones? Well, the dogs are amazing, right? So I'm not a dog expert. I'm a I'm an archaeologist. Right. But I've had perhaps more experience working with the dogs than any other archaeologist in the state at this point. And what I've learned through working with the canine handlers and these dogs, a little bit about their training and how that develops. So there's live find training where, you know, dogs are trained to find people, but they can also cross train to have dogs search specifically for remains. And in this instance, the handlers work with the dogs. They use a donated human ash as their target. And so these dogs are trained to find that scent, right? And alert or signal and as appropriate when they find this stuff. They don't get confused with animal scent, which is, you know, so if there's pet remains in the house, which there often are, mm-hmm. apparently those odors are unique to the dog and they can distinguish. They don't alert on pet cemeteries and graves. Ash. They can distinguish human action. And the way it works for us, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that they're basically a remote sensing technique. So they help us take, when we go to a, uh, one of these these sites, the bird building, it may be a 2,000 square foot building that's now been rendered to a few inches of ash. And it's a, it's a crazy thing to walk on the first time. You're just struck by the, the level of destruction, the cacophony of different textures and ash. And you're, you're thinking, I'm supposed to find this small pocket of ash within the massive expansion of the, the devastation of this building. And what the dogs do is, you know, they'll search the scene and they'll alert in an area where they detect the scent of few remains. What they've effectively done is taken a, a, a footprint of a building that may be several thousand square feet to search and reduced our search area to maybe a hundred square feet, right? That's a huge win to begin with. And so mm-hmm. that's in essence how we're implementing the dogs on these searches. So you qualified a bit. You're not a dog trainer. And I imagine you're not that much of a funeral director, but for a moment, <laughs> tell me a little bit about cremains. Is it basically just the bones? Is that what's left when cremains? I've been to, unfortunately, you know, a few ash scatterings recently, but I didn't even know exactly what it was that I was touching. Right. You're looking to identify what you're searching for and understanding how the cremains were made their formation process and how they got there. This is a typical thing archaeologists call site formation processes. We're adapting some of these skill sets from archaeology into this new application. Anyway, when someone passes away and their body is sent to the crematorium, they are incinerated in a furnace, and then that renders the corpse down to ash, but it doesn't completely burn all the bones. Then what remains is put in what was described to me as a large Cuisinart, it's a, a big stainless steel blender that grinds what remaining bone into a, a fine ash. So that's kind of the process at the crematorium. An important element I learned is that by law, they are mandated to put a medallion with the ashes. So this is a steel or metal medallion. It has designation for the crematorium that performed the work as well as a number that's unique to the individual. So this medallion is specific to the person you're looking for, and it's put in with the ashes. A lot of people don't know this, right? I'm fascinated. 
Yeah, folks have gotten big trouble. You know, like my grandma wanted to be spread at the bottom of Yosemite Falls and they go, nobody's looking, they don't get a permit and they dump the ashes. Well, somebody goes and goes, hey, somebody dumped ashes. They find this medallion and they'll call the family and get in trouble, <laughs> right? Because they didn't know. So how do they detect the medallion is also checked through some sort of chemistry or how do uh, they- No, the medallion has a number actually engraved on it. Into the- yes. Is it very small or it's not? I had this envision that it was ground up in the Cuisinart, but it's not. They're the size of maybe half dollar. Okay. So it's in the, the bag, if you will. Yes. And so okay. the idea is it's supposed to go with the corpse and keep track of the ashes. So you know that you're getting that your family's individual ashes are trackable. Okay. Right. So oftentimes when we're doing these recoveries, we'll find the human ash along with the medallion. And that's, that's mm. you know, probative evidence to prove that we've found the person. Wow. Okay, so you know that the dogs are actually finding the cremains and not the cat right. or just something else that burned up. Right. You see, you learn something new on the long leash all the time. <laughs> yeah, I probably today. didn't know that. <laughs> Every, everything, you did, everything you need to know about uh, cremains. What was the, the impetus that got you interested in using dogs for this and, and involved? Because obviously California has all these wildfires, but is that the thing that, that drove you to, to look into this? Right. So, well, so the origin story here is I live in Santa Rosa, which is about an hour north of San Francisco, California. And a few years ago, we had a massive destructive wildfire that swept through our community overnight, burned over 8,000 buildings and killed over 50 people. It was a catastrophic event, made international news. When a disaster of that scale strikes your community, there's a, a huge impulse to try to jump in there and help, Right. I was in my office and we're all reeling from this disaster in the coming days. And in my office, there was an engineer who came over and he had lost his home. He lived in Coffee Park, was kind of the epicenter of this disaster. And he was crying and he said, you know, my father and mother's ashes were, were kept in the house. I didn't get to follow through with their wishes, which were that they'd be scattered to this specific place. Is there anything you can do as an archaeologist? And I, you know, of course I will, I'll try. And uh, a friend of mine who's also an archaeologist had recently got back from a project looking for Amelia Earhart on Nicomero in the South Pacific, and they'd brought a canine forensic team out there to do some searching. And so I said, well, I had this connection. I'll, I'll call the, these canine folks, see if they're interested in giving this an attempt. And that's, that's how it started with this first house in Santa Rosa. Since then... Were the same dogs that helped find Amelia Earhart used in finding your friends? Ashes? Yes. Wow. That was the same individual canine handler, Lynn Engelbert and Piper was the dog. Was Piper successful in the uh, Amelia Earhart investigation? Uh, no. That's an ongoing research project. I know that they're mobilizing another effort to go back out there and search this island. There's a, a lot of interesting evidence that points to that she crashed on this specific island. And now it's a matter of trying to find a bone so that we can do DNA and prove it's Amelia. What degree of confidence do you as an archaeologist and as Piper's handler have that once Piper sniffed around and said, didn't discover anything, that there's no bones there? Well, so I wouldn't think of it that way. So okay. there's a lot that plays into the dog's performance. And so the dogs are capable of doing their job, but environmental conditions change day to day, right? So the ideal situation is we go to a house, the site is completely undisturbed since the disaster event 
and the ashes haven't been mixed up or moved. It's a cool morning because dogs' noses work better at cool temperatures. It's uh, slightly moist. It's not very dry. There's no wind, right? So the scent has been allowed to pool in an area and gather a stronger scent. So those are conditions that generally lead to highly reliable alerts from the dogs that they have detected the scent and they're either they've identified the source or they're in close proximity. Environmental conditions that are really not favorable to dogs are it's really windy and it's over 100 degrees and it's dry. So I'll give you two examples. We were working in the campfire paradise and I went to one of my favorite dogs. I went to this uh, site and we're talking to the homeowners. And like, so we, we asked them, who are we looking for? You know, this is your, your son. Okay. Uh, what was the vessel your son was kept in? I said, well, when my son passed away, a lot of family members wanted to do their own ceremonies and take him to places that they loved. And so what they had was a keepsake, which was a very small amount of ashes, you know, to the tune of, you know, maybe a salt shaker's worth. And, and we're talking about a massive house of debris. Mm-hmm. So I immediately think, hey, you know, I'm going to tell you that it's, this is going to be very difficult and it's unlikely that we'll find anything, but we'll do our best and the dog will probably alert and we'll collect ash from there. The essence of your family member will be here. And that's how I start off this conversation with the homeowner. The dog searches the site and alerts roughly where the homeowner suspected the ashes would be. And I look and see the dog's got his nose on the ground because they're trying to lay down. And oftentimes they face the source. And I look and right at the, where the dog's putting his nose, there's a pocket of human ash. And it's clearly the human ash. And then we find part of the vessel that it was kept in, which was a small ceramic urn. It's like, wow, that was amazing, right? Same dog, different site in paradise. It was a windy day. That we're looking for someone's mother-in-law who happened to be kept in the garage, right? Yeah. We won't go there. Backstory to that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I walk up to the garage and I see a pile of human ash. Very obvious. A large pile of human ash. There's human bones sticking out of it. And the medallion. It's right there. So what, wait, human bones sticking out of it? Yeah. So, so there's, How good was the cremains? I mean. So through our experience has been there's a vast range of crematorium practices, we'll say. So this one, you know, there's identifiable bone bits and things on the pile. Okay, we're, ju- we're just going to get, because I am I have purient curiosity, sure. like how big a fragment of bone are we talking about? Okay, so these are small fragments. So archaeologists are used to dealing with small fragmentary remains, right? So this might be the size of a quarter or your thumb. But for us, you know, we can see a, a morphological feature that's identifiable, and you can say that's the distal tarsal bone, you know, of the, on the right side. That's clearly a human bone. So we're seeing stuff like that, right? The point of my story here is, you know, this dog that performed amazing in one condition that a side came to this other side where it was, you know, after we see this pile of bones, we say, well, let's practice with the dog. It was very windy. This was a concrete slab. So there's nothing to capture the scent. It was all blowing away mm-hmm. and it was hot. And the same dog is running back and forth and it would lift its nose up like it's detected scent, and then it would run downwind where it's getting more scent and hit the fence line and run away. And it did this four or five times. And it was literally stepping through the human ash and not finding it because the conditions were such that it wasn't favorable to identifying the stuff. So, I, you know, I mentioned that the dog stepped in the ash. When, when you think of scent, I, I like to think of a metaphor of a dripping faucet. 
So a faucet may be dripping a drop at a time, and that's the source. But at the bottom on the ground, there may be a pool of water from this slow drip. Mm -hmm. The dog is going to alert on the pool, the set pool. that may not be the source. So I think that's what's going on here is that the source is letting off scent slowly and incrementally. And depending on the environmental conditions, if there's like a retaining wall next to it, or the substances that can cling to scent, collect the odor, those lead to the dog alerting. And again, I'm an archaeologist. I'm not a canine handler. This is kind of outside of my expertise and my wheelhouse, but in my experience, that's what I'm kind of seeing is that environmental conditions are leading to the dog's performance. The dog is capable. It's, it's the environmental conditions that change. It sounds like you've learned a lot oh by gosh. necessity in the whole olfactory process and how dogs do that. Absolutely. So again, I guess getting into the morbid of remains and like how good are these dogs? Would they be useful for detecting cremains or bones from 100, 200, 300 years ago? Well, yes. So the dogs are being brought onto archaeological projects where there's suspected remains. So historic cemeteries, prehistoric archaeological resources where we know there's a site there. And oftentimes prehistoric sites have human remains buried in them. We want to understand likelihood of encountering human remains. Often these are construction projects or, or the area is slated for some sort of ground disturbance. You know, maybe they're building a highway or an apartment complex or what have you. Mm -hmm. So dogs are being brought in on these projects. And recently in the East Bay area, they did a project where the dogs ran over the site, the known archaeological site, made a bunch of positive hits, and they subsequently excavated the site. And so that was great because more often than not, the dogs will run the site and then there's no ground truthing to corroborate their alert location where, with where the remains were found. In this instance, they actually were able to do that. And oftentimes the dogs were finding and were hitting near where remains were actually ultimately found. One of the problems with archaeological sites is so, you know, there may have been a prehistoric village there 2,000 years ago. They buried their dead in the village. And then over the course of 2,000 years after abandonment, critters are digging through the deposit and relocating remains that were once intact but are now spread all over the place. So the dog may be alerting on an ascent from not a burial at this point, but dislocated, disarticulated remains. So it becomes a little confusing. Again, there's variables that play into the dog's success. So in a city like Rome that just keeps being built on top of itself, they would go berserk. I'm sure they would just be going crazy. Yeah. be like, it's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> that is fascinating. Yeah. Did you, when you were, you know, in a quarter century ago, when you, when you first started this field, did you ever think that you would be working so closely with dogs? No, I had, that was never on my radar. <laughs> yeah. I think I was fairly short-sighted when I started out just young and bright-eyed, just happy to be doing the work. Well, there's so many tools that archaeologists have. Again, the technology must have changed with ground sensing, sonar, and, and all sorts of things. Where does a dog's nose fit into your toolbox or into your hierarchy? Well, so the dogs are amazing, and I absolutely believe that they work. It's the uh, environmental conditions that play into it. You know, what happened at the site after it was deposited, the field conditions during the search, those kinds of things play heavily into their success. A lot of people want to use, make quantitative statements, like the dogs are successful 87% of the time. But in reality, we can't get there because how do you measure success? We can make 
qualitative statements like the dogs are usually successful. The dogs help us reduce our search area considerably. So the dogs are, are great. I, I think it's a wonderful thing. And they fit into our toolkit in, in those ways. You know, it's just another mm-hmm. lens we can use to understand the archaeological site or the disaster site, which we can either, you know, use it to advance our knowledge and understanding of history and prehistory or in this instance, help recover human ashes and return them with their families. Absolutely. We are going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll hear about Alex's nonprofit organization, the Alta Heritage Foundation. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back. So prior to starting this nonprofit organization, most of your experience has been on the slightly more historical remains and archaeological discovery side, right? Things that archaeologists do. Oh, yeah. So I'm an archaeologist by training and academic experience and specializing in California prehistory and and, uh, hunter-gatherer studies. This is stretching out of my uh, wheelhouse, (laughs) doing, you know, cremated remains recoveries on contemporary burnt buildings, you know. I'm one to try new things. 
And I'm glad you brought up the nonprofit. So the scale of these responses is fairly massive. When we initially started in Santa Rosa, we excavated something like 24 houses, you know, from my initial helping of my friend and then at making a splash in the newspaper and more people calling us wanting help. To date, we've excavated over 300 houses in 17 wildfire disaster areas in the Western United States. We have over 150 volunteers, archaeologists, and canine handler teams. And we're organizing kind of a regional response so that we can be ready this summer when a disaster strikes and we can help people. My wife and I founded Alta Heritage Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to doing this work. Nobody gets paid. This is entirely a volunteer effort. We rely on donations to defray the cost of helping others. Finding human remains and returning them to family members that have just lost all of their possessions is a remarkably emotional experience. Mm. And the people that we're helping, oftentimes we hear, this is the only thing I wanted before I could move on. You know, now I can leave this place and start my life again. So in a way, what we're doing is providing solace to wildfire victims through our, mm. our donations of help. And uh, I'm going to plug the nonprofit's website. Please do. Well, we're going to mention it. We're going to put it in the show notes. Right on. But go ahead. Yeah, say uh, Alta Heritage Foundation. AltaHF.org. You can go on there. You know, if you are sadly a wildfire victim that needs help, reach out to us through the website. Get on our list and we'll contact you. Or if you want to make a donation to support this work, we would greatly appreciate it. You can do that there too. And again, the links will be in the show notes. Right on, thanks. Do you only focus on Western U.S. states or how far will you travel? Well, so we were recently going to respond to New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do, because it, logistically it's quite expensive to do these things, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to set up regional experts, so archaeologists paired with canine teams that have done this once or twice. Because the first time you do it, it's pretty befuddling to walk into the scene. But once you've done it a couple of times, you're well-equipped. So we're trying to set up local folks. We've worked in throughout California and Oregon and the Southern Washington. Okay. But are there similar organizations in other parts of the country and other parts of the world? No, there's nothing like this to my knowledge has been done before. So we're kind of building this from scratch. So if you dream big, I don't know how big you are dreaming, but where do you see Alta Heritage Foundation going? Well, so, you know, we want to help more people and we want to create a collaborative network that stretches everywhere that this needs to happen, right? So that the wildfires in Australia, mm-hmm. those devastating wildfires that ripped through the state, we're talking like 25 million acres burned or something, mm-hmm. a rat hole like that. No doubt there were folks that lost possessions as well as family members' ashes, which, the, you know, these heirlooms are significant to people. Mm-hmm. We would love to help them, and you know. And that could be as simple as connecting them with archaeologists and handlers that are already in Australia, providing them with training on, you know, what are we looking for and how you do the process, and then helping them go to the field and completing that work uh, is kind of what we're thinking. And we're open to uh, all those opportunities. Right now, we're focusing in our backyard, California in the West. That makes sense. So you said that you're often dealing with the emotion of these families. And I imagine that is something that is a little different when you're dealing with, you know, 
uh, prehistoric remains. What is it like to, it seems like you are just being stretched in so many ways personally through this process of not only learning how dogs' noses work and what they can do and what they can't do in the optimal conditions for a dog, but also just the the dealing with the family members. Right. That was the hardest part of this whole work and continues to be. There's a huge emotional burden into doing this work. And going into it, I wasn't ready for what I was going to experience. And subsequently, I, you know, I experienced some traumatic stress uh, having dealt with this. I went into the, this whole process trying to be very empathetic with people and mm-hmm. trying to serve as an archaeological volunteer, but also as like a therapist to some of these people. Hearing these stories are just, man, that, that stuff sticks to you. And uh, I struggled with it for a while. You know, the, the, some of these stories are just so tragic. And the environment we're in is incredibly sad to see that level of destruction. So, you know, archaeologists are accustomed to working with remains that are thousands of years old and, and the descendants are long gone. When working with human remains, you know, this person's mother is standing right there. And, you know, you're digging through their house where they've lost everything. Oftentimes, these people fled the house as it was on fire. They had no time to grab anything. And all of their worldwide possessions are destroyed. And we're looking for the ashes of someone that defined their life. You know, having gone through this process and dealt with that emotional situation, uh, one of the takeaways for me is, you know, when I go back to an archaeological site, I have a, a much better understanding of what it means to go poking around someone else's heritage. Can you share with me a story that you have? Oh, shoot. There's so many. I really struggle with the stories because I tend to break down. We were at a house in Paradise in Chico, and this person fostered children with disabilities. So oftentimes these children don't get adopted and they live out their lives. Some of these folks had a lot of significant medical impairments. And so we were looking for the ashes of five children. And two of them were her only biological children who were killed by a drunk driver. Hmm. We found everyone remarkably. And but that was just really a kind of a gut punch situation. And then, you know, my role in this process is kind of the lead archaeologist and coordinator. So not only am I dealing with the on-the-ground emotional situation here, I'm also managing 50 volunteers. And in Paradise, we would divide into six teams. There would be several archaeologists on each team and, and a couple of dogs. And each team would dig three houses that day. There's 16, so we'd be digging 18 houses in a day, every weekend, for months. Cumulatively, man, that just, I had a rough time with that and, uh, you know, brought a lot of that baggage home. You, you show up to a house and it's like, oh, we're looking for your son who was a gifted pianist who, at the age of 25, saved a woman from drowning, sacrificed his own life in the process, you know, or they were high school sweethearts who, after 50 plus years of marriage, she died. And then six months later, their house burned up and he's left homeless and, and alone. Those are the stories we're hearing every day. And you said that it has informed your other work. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, working with tribes on archaeological sites, they're very connected with their ancestors and, and their culture. And archaeologists are often trained in a way that objectifies the archaeological record in such a way that we're thinking of things as objects or formulas or quantitatively to come up with numbers to study it. That's not how tribes see this, right? We're going through 
their heritage in a way that can be considered disrespectful. Having gone through working closely with folks where we're looking for their husband or their son and going to a prehistoric site and maybe 500 years old, they still have strong feelings about what we're doing. And I'm far more sensitive to their perspectives and their cultural practices. For instance, a lot of the, the Native American community in California, they believe that when a person passes, they're put to rest in, with ceremonies and solves and cultural practices. And if you disturb a burial, you can disturb those spirits, which can then, depending on the individual, they could be bad spirit or a good spirit, and they could harm people. Those spirits can follow you home and harm your family. And so if people come down with an ailment, it's often blamed on spirits, right? So when we're working on these archaeological sites now, I'll often follow the tribal cultural practices of burning sage and smudging because that releases the spirits and can help send them home. Part of the reason I do that is because it's the tribal perspective that if you're not following the cultural practice, you're in essence polluted, you're dangerous. You have spirits attached to you that can harm yourself and others. And unless you, you're following their practice, you're going to have this perspective. So I've kind of come to an understanding that what I'm doing is not cultural appropriation, it's respect for their belief system. And I, I think that's been an outcome of my experience with the Cremains Project. And that's been informed by your personal experience with in Modern House Fire. Oh, absolutely. That's fascinating. Have you ever done any work here? I'm in Hawaii. Have you ever done work in Hawaii? I, I haven't. There's a lot of work that gets done in Hawaii. You know? And there's a deep understanding among Native Hawaiians about the mana that is in the bones and, and the reverence and that is fascinating. And, and I think that's a, a great perspective for an archaeologist to, to bring to it. Well, right. And my hope is that the field really moves in this direction of more anthropology and empathy and less objectification. Wow, that is a good place to, to stop. Thank you so much for being with us today, Alex. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for talking with me. I hope we talked enough about dogs and uh, a little bit about archaeology. <laughs> we did. Well, it seems that the dogs made all of this understanding in part possible. They did. And that's just one way that dogs are pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. We will post a link to your nonprofit organization, and uh, hopefully you will not have too busy a summer there in California. Thank you. With wildfires. Fingers crossed. Let's hope. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Good talking with you. Well, that is all we have time for on today's episode. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to hear more about the Alta Heritage Foundation and what they're doing, check out our sister podcast. It's called Dog Edition. We recently produced an episode about Alex and his work, which includes the full story from Molly Rich, who we heard from at the top of the show. She talked about how her father's ashes were being returned to her family. That episode of Dog Edition is called Dogs Recovering Precious Remains, and you can find a link to it in today's show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend or leave us a review or do both. You can find our entire back catalog on our website at longleashshow.com. Again, thanks for joining us. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha.
Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast. <laughs> 